Good evening. Uh, I've got a bit of a cold. Apologies if I sound a bit snuffly. Um, this evening I'm going to be talking about uh, Bridget or Breed uh, or Saint Bridget and talking about the various incarnations uh, of this quite ancient female figure from Ireland. So to begin with, before I get into some of the nitty-gritty regarding Bridget, it's probably worth pointing out that there is never just one version or one uh, type of figure that we find, particularly in ancient Celtic culture. What I mean by that is that Celtic mythology, uh, pre-Christian Celtic religion, uh, is really characterised by variety. That's because Celtic belief, particularly in the Iron Age, was not necessarily uniform across the whole area that the Celts inhabited. What we really see in the historical record are lots of different variations of very basic figures. So, for example, the more recent work uh, done by people such as Miranda Oldhouse Green um, really reveals general trends towards, for example, a sun god type, uh, a mother goddess type, uh, a triple mother type, um, certain gods associated with war, certain gods associated uh, with um, more chthonic themes, uh, the underworld, death, for example, certain gods and goddesses associated with prosperity and health and healing. But never just one god or one goddess associated with these different attributes. We did have um, goddesses that were common across large parts of Europe, but they're kind of in a minority. Uh, goddesses such as Epona, for example, um, who was probably originally a Gaulish goddess, horse goddess, who was um, picked up and uh, transported around Europe and even into Britain uh, on a few occasions, perhaps by Roman soldiers, Celts conscripted into the Roman cavalry, for example. But figures such as Epona um, and perhaps uh, a few of the male gods, they're actually rare in comparison to the, the vast array of local or regional gods that we find. So bearing that in mind, when we're trying to tease out these uh, earlier strands of who Brigid may have been, we kind of have to remember that she was almost certainly originally a territorial goddess, a goddess associated with one place in particular. Perhaps she grew to popularity across the whole of Ireland, um, which may be the reason why the early uh, Christian church saw it necessary to incorporate her into their uh, flourishing, developing, evolving mythology of saints. Um, <clears throat> but those later versions of Brigid aren't necessarily accurate reflections of this earlier non-Christian goddess in early Ireland. We can only really guess at what uh, her general themes and characteristics may have been. Having said all of that, Brigid is really introduced to the modern era um, in the form of Saint Brigid, 
who was a very popular figure in uh, in Catholic culture in early Ireland. Um, she's usually described as one of the great founding Christians of Irish culture, um, alongside Patrick and Colum Keel. So, you know, no small fry by any stretch of the imagination. Definitely a figure of great cultural importance in early Christianity in Ireland, which really takes off and begins flourishing uh, around the 400s and 500s. Uh, And she's one of the earliest Christian saints in Ireland. Her story is recorded in Vita Sancte Brigidae, which was a Latin text written by uh, a Christian monk called Cogitosus of Kildare uh, around 600 AD. And Brigid, of course, is associated with Kildare. Kildare uh, literally means in Irish um, oaken church or church of oak. And it's quite likely that that early uh, church of oak was built by Brigid. She was more than likely one of the earliest Christians to inhabit that, that place. I'm going to begin by looking at aspects of her story. And it's worth remembering that what we find in this Vita is actually quite typical of many saints' lives in the Christian tradition. There isn't anything remarkably out of place uh, in the various miracles that are uh, associated with Bridget. She's born in the middle of the 400s, around 450 AD. And uh, according to the Christian cleric that wrote her vita, she was born in Ireland of noble Christian parents stemming from the good and most accomplished tribe of Ochu. And Ochu, of course, is one of the great high kings of Ireland, so she is uh, of uh, royal descent. This is quite typical of saints in both Ireland and Wales. Uh, She's a member of the nobility, the aristocracy. Her father and her mother probably weren't Christians, actually. Uh, They were more likely to have been uh, pagans at this time. And she was probably the first person to be born a Christian in her family. Perhaps her mother was converted to Christianity first. Um, There are variations on the story, but ultimately... It's fair to say at this period, and it would be in keeping with many other saints' tales as well, that she is the first born Christian. And as we read through her vita, it's quite clear uh, that she is a very typical uh, early Christian saint. She does loads of amazing things, such as uh, as a child, she gives the milk to the poor and the wayfarers and also handed out the butter. So the produce she's supposed to be creating for her family, uh, she just hands it out to the poor, a very Christian thing to do. And when her mother finds out what she's done, she's all mad and fuming. But this blessed divine child prays to God and marvellous to behold at the very moment of the maiden's prayer, not only was her quota seen to be filled, but her production found to be much greater than that of her fellow workers. So not just that she can replace what she's given away, but she's abundant. And this is a very uh, obvious theme in her life story. This tendency to uh, create divine abundance might be a hint at her original form as an earlier Irish goddess. Abundance being one of uh, the more obvious attributes associated with uh, Iron Age goddesses. Uh, not just of Ireland, but of Britain and across Europe as well. So that's one of the first strands I'm going to follow, really, is this notion of natural abundance. 
um, particularly in terms of cows and uh, dairy produce, milk, butter, cheese. This is something that we find associated with fairy cattle uh, in later Welsh and Irish folklore. Uh, and English folklore as well, actually. These abundant, magical fairy animals that give great produce. Domesticated animals uh, that provide uh, great wealth uh, for the people uh, who own them. She also has a very Irish uh, propensity to create more pork. When she was cooking pork in the boiling trough, uh, which I think is essentially a stone trough... Uh, that they filled with water and then put stones heated in fires in the water to get it to boil, uh, thereby boiling the meat, the pork that's in the trough. A dog came fawning and begging and she gave him the food out of pity. Again, a very Christian attitude. This is very far removed from the myth cycles in Ireland. But when the pork was taken from the trough and divided among the guests, the amount in the trough was found to be still undiminished. So once again, this notion that she is abundant, that regardless of what she gives away, she can replace. But there's also an echo here of a great uh, divine or otherworldly feasts that are sometimes described in Irish myth. Uh, for example, Maranan Maclir is associated with a pig uh, that uh, even though you'll eat it uh, one night by the next day, uh, it's grown back. And the various uh, cauldrons of plenty that will provide endlessly. Uh, there's also Rhiannon's bag, of course. All of this is still in keeping with Celtic mythology, but it's a very Christian version of it. It's uh, always couched in terms of giving to the needy. The early Christian church, of course, positioned itself as a friend of common folk, um, as an organisation that was there to serve and to help the poor. Um, and that's one of the ways in which they gained uh, a lot of ground and a lot of popularity, because, of course, early um, medieval Celtic culture still being very hierarchical, still being very aristocratic, uh, the common folk were very often overlooked uh, and badly treated by their pagan betters. So the church found it very convenient to drive a wedge into that relationship uh, and to uh, attract the support of the common folk. And this is one of the ways that they did it in stories such as these. Now, there are various miracles um, that St. Bridget performs. There's also a wonderful supply of milk from one cow, um, a stolen sheep miraculously replaced. She turns water into beer. That's obviously an echo not only of Jesus, but also of this idea of abundance once again. Her feast day, the 1st of February in Malk, is associated with uh, lots of beer drinking in medieval Ireland and Wales. So she obviously has an association with uh, this uh, very favourite drink of the common folk, of beer. She miraculously ends a pregnancy, which is very interesting. Uh, her association with uh, women and with uh, the female theme in general uh, is something I'll look at a bit more later on. But it's interesting that in her vita, she's obviously a saint who's associated with uh, pregnancy and with uh, motherhood in general, even though she herself would have been considered a virgin uh, at this time in, in Christian society and Christian culture. She makes salt from rock. Um, she's got control over rivers. A hunted wild boar joins her pig herd. It's actually quite a common motif in saints' lives across 
uh, Europe, but particularly in the Celtic uh, nations, this idea of wild animals being domesticated by the saints. Uh, wolves act as swine herds for her. Again, this idea of Christianity bringing civility to the wild places. Wild ducks come to her. The miraculous transport of a huge tree. This is very interesting in her life story, where it's not clearly uh, described what the tree is for, which is interesting because, of course, huge uh, trees or pillars were a part of the... Uh, worship of divinities in Iron Age uh, Europe. She's also able to find uh, a source of honey through her divine inspiration. Again, she miraculously moves a river. And then even after her death, many miracles are ascribed to her, such as a millstone miraculously brought to a mill. Now, of course, all of these miracles, or the vast majority of them, are associated with uh, the working lives of common people of common folk, uh, of agrarian culture. Um, and it's quite likely that many of the earlier uh, Iron Age goddesses were associated with natural abundance, associated with not only the, uh, the fruitfulness of the land, but with actually working the land. There was one uh, idea put forward a couple of decades ago now, I think, that suggested that um, it was mainly women that cared for the land and for the animals and that they were seen as um, somehow magically uh, bringing out life from the barren land, able to create great produce in a, a magically abundant way. And that this was very much the role of women in Celtic society. It's not an idea that's really taken off, but I think it's an interesting one. And there's certainly evidence to associate women in particular with uh, natural abundance uh, and agricultural uh, work and production, uh, the creating of wealth. Yeah? Her life, in many ways, doesn't give us much to go on in terms of tracing her mythological lineage back to the earlier Irish goddesses. It's very typical uh, of a Christian saint's life. Uh, there's nothing in there that really stands out as associating her with a non-Christian figure, apart from the fact that early Christianity did borrow many um, characteristics and attributes, themes and stories from common folk culture so that it could present itself in a way that was understandable to common folk. Now, I'm sure many of you will um, appreciate that the original meaning of the word pagan, uh, paganus, literally means the people that lived outside of the urban centres, the people, the common folk that lived uh, in the countryside, essentially. Uh, and paganism essentially means the belief of common folk, wherever they may be. It's not a uniform belief, uh, it's a very varied, diverse set of beliefs with some common themes that we can outline, but ultimately um, it's something very local. Uh, and the church found a way into that culture by talking to these common folk in their own cultural terms, by essentially appropriating the story types and themes that were common amongst them, that were common to their beliefs. So, even though we can't say that uh, St. Bridget's life uh, in particular um, evokes 
uh, or clearly evokes an earlier non-Christian figure, um, merely in the fact that the early Christianity wanted to sell itself to common folk. Early Christianity in particular essentially borrows the clothes of non-Christian culture so that people could recognise it as something familiar to themselves. I just want to talk about another few sources from Irish myth. Uh, in the Second Battle of uh, Moitura, we find this uh, figure, Brieg, uh, and Brieg is a woman that we find in other sources is the daughter of the Dagda, for example. So a member of the Tuatha de Danann. And the Tuatha de Danann are essentially a pantheon of Iron Age Celtic gods who have slowly been turned into more human uh, heroes uh, in the medieval period. But we have this in the Second Battle of Moitura where the Tua de Danan have been fighting the Fomorians, uh, and Brieg's son, Ruadan, has been uh, wounded. Uh, but after the spear had been given to him, Ruadan turned and wounded uh, Goivnu, who is the smith god, of course, of, uh, of Irish myth. And Goivnu pulled out the spear and hurled it at Ruadan so that it went through him. And Ruadan died in his father's presence in the Fomorian assembly. Brieg came and keened for her son. At first she shrieked, and in the end she wept. Then for the first time weeping and shrieking were heard in Ireland. Now, what that means, essentially, is that this figure, Brieg, was the first to keen in Irish culture. And keening was a very central part of medieval Gaelic culture, uh, in Ireland and Gaelic culture in Scotland. But in both cultures, we seem to have uh, records of professional keeners, women who would be paid um, a fee to come and keen at uh, a dead person's, or just before a dead person's wake. It's not part of the wake itself, it happens before. Uh, over the body of the dead person, <clears throat> keening would sometimes evolve reciting the lineage, um, or the history or the sort of the family story of uh, of the deceased. And then, of course, there would be the actual keening itself, which was the high-pitched wailing or crying. Now, this is obviously um, a professional service provided by women in Celtic society, or in these Celtic societies in particular. There's not necessarily... Um, uh, corresponding practice in Wales, although there might have been something similar at uh, earlier points in our history. But ultimately, it's something we find in Ireland and Scotland. Uh, it's carried out by women. They're given a fee for it. It's obviously a very ancient practice, and it's associated with this figure. So professional female keeners, mourners, suggests that this brig here is somehow associated perhaps not specifically with the dead, but at least with a professional service provided by women associated with the dead. And that's interesting for several reasons, the main one being that this might suggest the Brigid tradition is essentially a, a female tradition, not just amongst nuns um, in Christian culture, but also amongst what you might call um, a tradition of priestesses prior to Christianity. 
And the reason several people have suggested this is because of what's well, mainly an account of um, St. Bridget's Fire that was written about a thousand years ago. In Geraldus Cambrensis's description of Ireland, and we have to be a little bit cautious with what Geraldus Cambrensis writes. Um, Geraldus Cambrensis was essentially someone who was part of Norman culture uh, in England and Wales about a thousand years ago. And he wrote books on Wales and Ireland, but often from a slightly aloof position. Uh, and he obviously liked a bit of gossip. So we can't rely too heavily on his evidence. But where there's smoke, there is often fire. He has this to say about various miracles in Kildare. The fire which never dies and whose ashes do not increase. In Kildare, in Leinster, which glorious Brigid has made famous. Geraldus Cambrensis, of course, was a churchman himself uh, and would have been very familiar with Brigid as a Christian saint. There are many miraculous wonders worth noting. The first of these is the fire of Brigid, which is said to be inextinguishable. Strictly speaking, it can be extinguished, but the nuns and holy women have long nourished and fed the flame with such great care and diligence that since the time of the Virgin Saint herself, it has never gone out. Moreover, in all this time, the ashes of the fire have not increased. Bridget tends the fire on her own night. In the time of Bridget, there were 20 nuns serving the Lord, with Bridget herself being the 20th. But since the time of her death, there have been only 19, with a number never increasing. Each takes her turn for a single night tending the fire, but when the 20th night comes, the 19th nun places a log near the fire and says, Bridget, tend your fire. This is your night. In the morning, the wood has been burnt as usual and the fire still blazes. It's quite easy to associate ceremonial fire with Bridget, mainly because her feast day is on the 1st of February, which, as I'm sure you'll appreciate, is uh, the Irish festival Imolc. Now, Imolc, as well as the other Irish festivals, Bieltana, uh, Sawain and Lunasa, uh, they often have fire associated with them. So it's quite likely that there would have been fires on Imolc, and not only fires, but also candles. Uh, in Wales, um, uh, we know it as Gwilfair Canhwyllau, the candle festival of Mary. And it's traditional to light candles at this time, um, not just in Wales, of course, but also in Ireland. So fire, even at this late period, is associated with Bridget. And here we have what's obviously a special ceremonial fire. We could say, well, this is a purely Christian tradition. Uh, there's no evidence of this stretching back beyond the arrival of Christianity in Ireland. But conservative traditions uh, are very durable things. When Christianity turns up in Ireland, it obviously becomes very popular. We can imagine a situation where we have different cults, different non-Christian cults in Ireland, 
seeing the direction of travel, Christianity flourishing, developing, growing, becoming popular, and positioning themselves in such a way so that they can be incorporated into Christian culture without too much fuss and bother. I think that's important because what we might have in the tradition of uh, St. Bridget's fire is a very long tradition that could go back to pre-Christian Ireland. The reason I say that is because of this last description that Geraldus Cambrensis gives. The hedge around the fire which no man may cross. Bridget's fire is surrounded by a circular hedge that no man may cross, and if by chance some presumptuous male does enter, as certain foolish ones have attempted, he does not escape unpunished. Only women are allowed to blow on the fire, and not with their mouths, but with bellows or winnowing. Also, because of a curse by the virgin saint, goats never bear their young in that place. I'll talk about what the, the rest of this paragraph means in a minute. But this idea of a purely female cult associated with uh, a Christian saint who obviously has her roots in a non-Christian past, is very suggestive. We know that there were goddesses in uh, Iron Age Celtic religion uh, that were only attended by women. Uh, we know that there were covens of what we might call sorceresses or witches uh, in the Celtic period that were purely female, that had special associations with their own divinities. So it wouldn't be out of place to find such a tradition in Iron Age Island. Neither would it be um, uh, unreasonable to assume that such a tradition could have been incorporated into later Christian practice. And it's worth just pointing out at the very end there. Uh, goats never bear their young uh, in Kildare in that place. And there are beautiful plains in the area called Bridget's Pastures, but no one dares to plough them. It is said to be a miracle that although the animals of the whole province graze there, in the morning the grass is as tall as ever. About these pastures one could say, all the day-long grazing of the herds, the cool dew of a single night renews. So the land itself is fertile and is abundant and uh, is perfect grazing. Again suggesting that Bridget is somehow uh, a later medieval version of an earlier territorial goddess, the vast majority of which um, had an aspect of abundance. Um, we can just think of Epona once again, a horse goddess, but also a goddess of abundance associated with grains and fruits, uh, often pictured with baskets of produce. Yeah. Uh, there are various goddesses also uh, in Britain, just think of Rosmerta, for example, uh, again a goddess of abundance. But interestingly, several of these goddesses were also associated with death. So we find uh, references or sort of um, suggestions of Epona and Rosmerta being included in graves, for example. So it's as if the the territorial goddesses who are responsible for uh, natural abundance are also somehow responsible for the dead that go into their soil uh, and that they are somehow perhaps responsible for taking care of them in the afterlife. 
Um, that whole complex of meanings is, of course, embodied in St. Bridget, uh, this Christian saint. Uh, she's associated with abundance, obviously. She is uh, somehow associated with uh, death and the tradition of keening, or that breed invents. I suppose the only other thing that I should mention in terms of uh, the Irish breed, or Bridget, um, is what we find in Cormac's Glossary, which was written around the 10th century. It's an Irish text, and that mentions uh, a breed with two sisters. So a breed who is well-loved by poets, which might suggest that this version of breed is somehow uh, a patron or a patroness of, of the filly, of the poets. And then a sister of hers, also called breed, uh, associated with healing, and another sister of hers, the third breed, associated with smithcraft. And of course, that could suggest that Breed was what's normally called a triple mother in uh, Romano-Celtic iconography, where we have these images of three divine mothers, usually uh, nursing an infant uh, with baskets of produce or with cornucopia. There are no triple mothers associated with different crafts, but that might just be a peculiarity of this triple deity in Ireland. And that does also chime, obviously, with earlier Celtic culture, even though this is a 10th century text. So that's the other important um, bit of uh, the historical record that we need to consider. If you want to sign up for the free Taliesin Origins video course, then please visit the Celtic Source Facebook page, where you can also find other similar bits of content I've created. Just go to Facebook and search for Celtic Source. If you're interested in signing up for a longer paid course, please visit the website gwilmore.com. That's spelled G-W-I-L-M for mother, O-R dot com. And you can also watch the video versions of these podcasts, image and text slides included, by subscribing to the Celtic Source YouTube channel. Diolch yfawr.